Uh, this morning we're looking at the story of uh, the blind man that Jesus heals. Uh, Luke doesn't give him a name, but Mark's gospel tells us that he's a man called Bartimaeus, and that he was known by lots of people as blind Bartimaeus. And there is a tradition, which I think is quite cool, that he became one of the elders in the Jerusalem church, which uh, I think when you read this story, I think is just fantastic. But uh, yeah, let's, let's come to the, to the text. Let's, let's read God's word and then let's um, meet with God there. Let's pray as we, before we do that. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your word is not a dead letter, but it is living, active, and alive and shapes us. And Lord, we pray that as we read this passage, that as we hear uh, how you interacted with Bartimaeus, Lord, we pray that we would be struck by Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So the passage is Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 35 to 43. And uh, if you can't get there quick enough, don't worry, it's on the screen. But uh, let me read it. It says this. As Jesus approached Jericho... A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They said to him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Now, at one level, this is just a very simple story. There was a man who was blind, and then he met Jesus, and then he wasn't blind. I'm done. (laughs) I kind of want us to walk through this story, to spend some time thinking about this man, spend some time thinking about this meeting, and see the many applications that there are for us. So I think the first thing is, this man existed in this state long before this story came. So the thing about being a blind man in uh, Israel is the first thing is that you are just by nature, an outcast. So for one, blind people were excluded from the priesthood. So even if you were a Levite, even if you were a descendant of Aaron, you couldn't serve if you were blind. So there's automatically some kind of um, stigma that's going to arise there. But also, just because of the way that life works in a pre-modern culture, he couldn't work. What jobs are there available for someone who can't see in this world? And so the only job that he can do, the only kind of livelihood he can have, is begging. Which nowadays, there's, we don't really like the phrase begging. In fact, there's begging laws. It's illegal, for instance, to shake the bucket and ask for donations. But in Israel, begging was a necessity for some people. And so this was considered his job, his livelihood. And it was considered by the public to be a good thing, an ethical thing, a moral thing to give to beggars. It wasn't just a pity thing, it was the right thing to do. And so there he is, sat down every day, 
begging, making his money. Now notice that he is dependent completely on those around him to just get by. He is dependent to know who's passing by. There's no good asking another pauper for money. But if there's a Levite walking by, for instance, you need someone to say, hey, Bartimaeus, there's a Levite coming. So he's dependent on others just to beg. And then when he gets his income, he's dependent on others to spend it. He can't just walk into the market and say, yeah, one of those, one of those, one of those. He can't see anything. So he's constantly living his life dependent on those around him to have his best interests at heart. Excluded from the community, excluded from what it means to be a full, functioning, active member of the society. Notice that he's on the road approaching Jericho. He's not in Jericho. He's not in the city. He just lives out on the road. This is the life that he lives and that he has to put up with by nature of being blind Bartimaeus. Now one day, same as every day, he's out of the road, doing his begging, still dependent on those around him. Still dependent on those around him to say who's coming. Except this time, there's lots of foot traffic. There's lots of noise. There's lots of buzz. And so it can't just be a Levite. It can't just be one of the Pharisees coming. It can't just be one of these big social names. Something big is going on here. And he is dependent on those to say, he says, what's happening? He heard the crowd going by and he asks, what is happening? He has no idea. And they say to him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now you think what is happening now in the mind of Bartimaeus. His whole life has had him cast out. His whole life has had him holding on to others, those who were also cast out, no less. And now he hears this name, Jesus of Nazareth. He's heard this name before. Jesus is becoming known all around Israel now. He is the man who has freed demon-possessed people. This is the man who has made crippled people walk. This is the man who can heal any illness who takes on the Pharisees on the Sabbath day. This is the man who has become known for maybe being the Messiah. Now you think about the life that Bartimaeus has led. When he comes to the synagogue, and he can't read the Bible for himself, but he can hear, and he hears Isaiah being read out because they love to read Isaiah in first century synagogues. You imagine what is going on in his heart when he hears in Isaiah 42 that when the Messiah comes, the blind will see. And now, the one who I think is the Messiah, the one who everyone is saying might be he, is about to pass me by. The one who can make the blind open their eyes and behold the world that God has made is about to pass by. And so it's not even like it's a second thought. There's no thought that goes into it. It just says, and so he called out. He's not weighing up his options. He knows this is the chance to take what only this man can offer. And so he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And that phrase, son of David, you think about what's going on. Who is David? 
David is the king of Israel, the Messiah. His son is the Messiah. And so this man is animated by the promises of God. He is animated by what he's heard in the scriptures. He's animated by what's going to happen when this Messiah comes. And so the shout just comes naturally. Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Look at me in my poor estate. See how in need I am of you. He is animated by the power of God. He believes that God, this man, Jesus, son of David, has the power to deliver what God has promised. He believes he really can heal him of his blindness. He really can do what the scriptures say that he will do. And so he's animated by the promises of God and animated by the power of God in unison because God delivers on what he says. And so he calls out, have mercy on me. We're then told that those who led the way, as in these are the people at the front of Jesus' procession, these are the, the gang that have been walking with Jesus, they're the ones at the front, you know, we're, we're in the procession, we're leading Jesus. And they hear someone in need, they hear someone calling out, calling on the Messiah for mercy, and their instinct, their first reaction is, shh. It's amazing how often this happens, isn't it? The disciples see children being brought to Jesus, and they say, send them away, we don't care. In fact, the only person who doesn't seem to get stopped in their approach to Jesus was the person we looked at last week, the rich young ruler. He just waltzes up to Jesus and everyone thinks that's fine. And the thing is, when you compare these two, you find that these are like night and day. The rich young ruler is the one who externally is everything God is looking for. The one who stands out among the people. The one who can say to Jesus, well, I've kept all the commandments since my youth. The one who has wealth, the one who looks the part, the one who struts up to Jesus wearing his righteousness like a peacock's plumage. No one stops him. Bartimaeus, on the other hand, has no plumage. He sat in the dirt. He has no works he can point to. He's not young, he's not rich, and he's not a ruler. And he's the one that people try and stop. And so they're quieting him, they're telling him, be quiet. And I, <laughs> I just love this. He hears their rebukes, he hears their quiets, and what does he think? This is the person who can give me what I need. And so it says, and he shouts all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. If he really believes that Jesus is the one who can give what he needs, he is not going to take the shushing of those around him. He's not going to take any obstacle that's in the way. He's not going to have anything stop him from getting to the one that he needs. And so he keeps shouting, I don't care if you're going to shush me. He keeps going. And I just, I love verse 40. Jesus stops. We've been going 
through this section of Luke now since January last year. And one of the things that keeps coming up is that Jesus refuses to stop. Despite the fact that people keep saying to him, but they're going to kill you when you get there. He keeps going. Despite Peter's insistence, despite things going on around him, despite the Pharisees trying to stop him, Jesus says, I need to press on. But when there's a blind, needy man that no one else cares for that's being shut up, that's when Jesus goes, we need to stop. I love verse 40 because two words tell us so much about Jesus' heart. He stopped. And the man who was silenced by everyone around him is ordered to be brought to Jesus a one-on-one audience. It's not gather up all the people who are in need and let me grant some requests. It's uh, I can hear him. I can hear you shushing him. I want to talk to him, not you. Me and, and my family, we love the Lord of the Rings. In fact, just as a fun exercise, go and ask Jelly at the end of uh, church what she thinks about Lord of the Rings. It's very funny. But there's this uh, really, I, I find it a really powerful scene. In the, in the first film, uh, the Council of Elrond, you have all these powerful people who have gathered from every corner of Middle-earth. You've got dwarf lords and elven kings and uh, lords of men. And they're all there. All these powerful people with prestige and influence are there, gathered to decide what is going to be done about this ring, this place where evil is in this focal point. And they start to descend into factions, deciding, well, they want to do this with it. One of the phrases used is, I'll be dead before I see the ring in the hands of an elf. And they divide. And they go into this argument, and they are shouting at each other, completely distracted by the fact that exactly what evil wants is for them to be divided and scattered. And in this rabble, in what's going on, you just hear this tiny voice of Frodo the Hobbit, a race that most people haven't even heard of. They're not lords. They're not special. They just love food and growing things. And Frodo's the one who stands up and says, I will take it. And no one can hear him. He's just one tiny voice. And you see Gandalf, the wizard, the one who's the strongest there out of everyone, who himself is engaged in this argument, in this rabble. He just hears this tiny voice. And you just see him close his eyes. It's implying that he's doing some kind of magic or something. And he just stills the conversation. And Frodo's voice comes to the fore. I will take it. And everyone's in stunned silence. While they are great warriors and great lords. And they are engaged in this stupid argument. The tiniest, the most insignificant, that's the voice that comes through. And it's a really profound scene, I think, because it sets the, the theme for the whole story being that the, the small and the insignificant are where the real power lies. Now, where did Tolkien get that concept from? From spending time in the Gospels, from spending time with Jesus. The Jesus who sent a Pharisee away sad. That's, that's what we read with the rich young ruler. And he went away sad. 
But this blind man, this outcast, stands there before Jesus. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, at one level, you might think that's a really obvious question. You know, you can imagine Bartimaeus giving a sarcastic answer. You know, oh, a new pair of headphones. Well, maybe not. But it's though this man is a beggar with no influence. And now comes Jesus. No money himself, but lots of influence and lots of wealthy people in his train. He could have said, could you tell your guys to give me a really big um, gift? Makes sense in the first century. Makes sense. Because if a blind man was given a huge bag of wealth, he's set for life. Doesn't have to beg anymore. So maybe he could ask that. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? What would the person who shouts out above the crowd have me do? Lord. There's an acknowledgement of who he's talking to here. Lord. The one with the power. I want to see. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Jesus doesn't put the power of the healing in anything other than the faith this man has. Which is interesting because we live in a world today where we have charlatans and uh, people in all corners of the world who can fleece the flock. Who can say, well, you know, I'll heal you, and if it doesn't work, you don't have enough faith. Where they can abuse people's need for God's help and make a killing off it. And often, I think, they go to passages like this and say, look, faith heals you. So if you're not healed, you don't have enough faith. Simple as that. And I think this just comes down to a complete misunderstanding of what faith is. I mean, just look at how it functions in this story. Faith is not simply something that goes on in your head when you say, I think this could happen. Faith is not just believing the right things about God. Faith is not just saying, well, this is all going to be fine. Faith is a man who knows this is the only one who can heal me, and so I'm going to keep yelling at the top of my lungs, have mercy on me. That is faith. Faith is going after the one who has the answers. Isn't that the kind of faith that we need to have? If we do believe that we can meet with God, why would you put any obstacle in the way of that happening? If you think that, for instance, church on a Sunday is a place where God's saints are gathered together, where we are asking the Holy Spirit to be in our midst, where we are gathering with God, why would you put any obstacle in the way of getting there. You're saying, I want to meet with God, and so I'm going to do what Bartimaeus did, and I'm going to call out the top of my lungs, have mercy on me. That is faith. 
faith is what brought Bartimaeus before Jesus, yelling out until his lungs were sore, discarding the advice of those around him. I need to get to Jesus, he says, and so he will not stop until he has gotten to Jesus. It says, immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus, praising God. Now, this, <laughs> this is just so ironic. When all the people saw it, bear in mind, we've been introduced to three characters in this story. The blind man, Jesus, and the people. What were the people doing? Shh, shh. Shut up, shut up. Jesus shushed them and brought Bartimaeus. And now they've seen the miracle. They're all going, oh, fantastic. This is so good. Wow, we love what you do, Jesus. I think that can just be so symptomatic of sometimes how we are. We put obstacles in the way. We hinder, perhaps, other people coming to God. Maybe because we've got some embarrassment. Maybe we've got something that we don't want to deal with. There could be all kinds of reasons why, would we, would, why we would find ourselves like the crowd at the beginning. And yet at the end, oh, fantastic. Now, I think in the same way, we can be resistant to something. God can do wonders, and afterwards we can say, okay, that was good. But how does that change our heart for the next time that something like that comes along? You know, so imagine what the story would, like, would be like if the crowds were the one who said, oh, Bartimaeus, come on, come on, you come and see Jesus, you come and see Jesus. It would kind of feel like, They had earned the right to celebrate at the end, I guess. So in the same way, why don't we be like the crowds as they should have been? There's going to be a whole multitude of ways that can happen. I'm not going to go through specifics. But there's going to be times in life where you have the opportunity to hinder something that God is doing in someone's life or in the life of the church or in the life of the world. Or to say, I think Jesus wants to have something to do with this. So that's, I think, how we can be like the crowd. I think there's a way we can apply everyone in this story to us, though. So I think, let's think about Bartimaeus. How can we apply that to ourselves? So, what is the biggest need that you have in your life that needs to be dealt with? that only Jesus can deal with. And when Jesus says, what do you want me to do? Are you going to say, big man, big bag of money, please? Or are you going to say, I want to see? So, it might be more comfortable to have something else dealt with than what Jesus wants to deal with in your life. Let me uh, give a silly illustration of this. There's a sketch on um, Monty Python where... Two people are walking through the, the market in first century Israel. And uh, this very healthy-looking man kind of jumps along and skips along. And he goes, you got a shekel for an ex-leper? And he says, did you say ex-leper? Yes, sir. Got healed. What do you mean you got healed? Jesus of Nazareth. He touched me and he made me well. Took away my livelihood. <laughs> and he said, well, have you asked him to give you leprosy again? Yeah, he won't do it. And it's irreverent and it's silly, but I think it makes the point that the foolishness of this man who has had his leprosy dealt with and then says, well, now I have to get a real job. 
And the reality is Bartimaeus can't beg anymore. But he's had his biggest need dealt with. I think sometimes we want the surface needs dealt with. And it takes some exposure on our own heart. It, it takes some looking inside and saying, what is the real need that I need dealt with that if it was dealt with, I would have to do something about? We can go looking for this person or that person or seeking out help. But ultimately, Jesus is the one we need to come to. Are we prepared to have the issues fixed that we need fixed? It could be very uncomfortable. There could be something in your life which does not belong in the life of a Christian. There could be a habit. It could be a situation. And we're asking Jesus for this, and he's saying, well, are you prepared for this to be dealt with? In the same way, I think the story of Bartimaeus encourages us to be the kind of people who are constantly calling on the Lord for mercy and help, who are saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. I realize I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. I realize you are the one who can help. So we keep coming and we keep shouting. We keep railing to God. Spurgeon made the, the point that prayer is like a big bell. And some people are happy to just shake the rope. And he says the one who will succeed in prayer is the one who grasps it with both hands and rings until their arms are sore. It's such a brilliant analogy, I think. Bartimaeus just yells out to God. And then lastly, well, let me defend this point first. The, the first thing to say is the Bible tells us that the goal of being a Christian is to become more and more Christ-like. So don't hear this as me saying that whenever we read a story about Jesus, we're supposed to go, well, we're, we're basically Jesus. No, Jesus does things that only Jesus can do. But at the same time, what Jesus shows us in this story is what unfiltered compassion looks like. We can be compassionate people. You may have compassion on someone. But even your best compassion, even your best emotions are tainted by sin. Jesus shows us unfiltered, unfallen, completely free of sin, compassion. And it tells, it results in telling people who are all following you, who are all in your train to shut up and bring this man to me. He's the one who needs help. We need to be more Christ-like. We need the kind of compassion that Jesus has that can only come from God. And there's some really good news if you feel like you're more like Bartimaeus than Jesus right now. Jesus still has the compassion that he has here now in heaven. He has not ceased to love and to care for and desire the prayers of his people just because he's not here to be physically held or seen anymore. And so if you feel like Bartimaeus this morning, call out to God and know that he still quiets the crowd and asks you to come forward. So, be like the crowd, as they should have been. Let's facilitate people to come and encounter God, whether that's evangelism, whether that's inviting people to church, whether that's just praying with someone. Let's facilitate encounters with Jesus. 
Let's be like Jesus and have the kind of compassion that gives people the dignity and honor that God gives them. So we have time for those around us. And let's be like Bartimaeus by being aware of our own shortcomings, by being aware of the great big holes in our lives and coming to the one who can deal with them, laying everything on the table. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your compassion. We do thank you for this story. And Lord, we pray that we, like Bartimaeus, would be aware of our blindness. Blindness to the wonderful things you are doing in our world, in our life. Blindness to our own sin and our own shortcomings. And Lord, we just ask, have mercy on us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you do. We thank you that you constantly pour and pour the love of God upon us. So bless us in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.